the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm in the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. The German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. I repeat, the German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. There was no Allied confirmation. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. Bob Trout and Edward R. Morrow, respectively, there of CBS News from a broadcast dating back 67 years. And turn our memories back toward that important battle that was really the beginning of the end, certainly, of World War II in Europe. Um, And it's amazing because if we think about the ensuing years that have passed, imagine for a moment the fact that most of the boys, and many of them were just that, 17, 18-year-old boys, that landed on beaches with names like Utah and Normandy uh, on that date back in 1944, that many of them today would be in their late 80s. This, as um, Tom Brokaw called it, indeed, America's greatest generation who saw some of the most difficult times, built some of the greatest character, to be sure, of any generation. And as we are losing contact with these brave men and women day by day as the clock ticks down, I think it's important to be reminded of the tremendous sacrifices that they made for all of us. Much of that takes place inside the pages of a book by my next guest. The book is called Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. And joining me tonight on the program is a young lady who certainly is a familiar voice to many of us. Uh, She is an award-winning journalist, three times over, in fact, receiving Emmy Awards. She has been a correspondent on um, such highly rated news programs as Fox News, MSNBC, and uh, currently with CBS and um, is the author of this new book. And Rita Cosby, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. And, and Craig, I have a newsflash for you. Um, I just found out I made the New York Times bestseller list a few minutes ago. Well, congratulations. So you were the first one to know, aside from my father. You know, <laughs> being, a, being a journalist from way back, I always love a scoop, and so I'm, I'm pleased to be able to scoop. Let me, re, let me reiterate the introduction. And New York Times bestselling author, Rita Cosby. Oh, I'm so thrilled. And I'll just tell you, I literally just hung up the phone with my dad, Craig, who is alive. As you talk about a lot of these guys in their 80s, my dad is 85. He was so choked up and so happy because you think about here is a guy who could not speak almost a word of English when he was saved by U.S. troops and said, I want to come to America because America is the greatest country in the world and came from, you know, Poland, was a teenager, thrust to war, comes to America, 
and for it to be on the bestseller list, my father is so touched and so humbled and so happy that people are learning about this part of history and, and also learning about the comrades, many of whom did not make it back. You know, it's an amazing story because as much as we think about, you know, television channels like the Military Channel that are dedicated to the events of World War II and the books that are out there um, and, and so much material, and yet there are so many stories that have never been told and it's interesting because this this generation uniquely kind of kind of had that we went we did a job we came back and now we're moving on with life e- even in your own experience in the case of bringing your dad's story to print uh, was one that you literally accidentally ran into oh absolutely and my father as you talked about never talked about this and to this day you could even tell when i just broke the, you know the news that we made the new york times bestseller list he was so humbled and so happy that this story and that the comrades are getting the recognition. It's always about someone else. It's never his story. It's always, I'm happy that the Polish people and I'm happy that the American troops are getting the recognition. And, and that is endemic of that whole group, that whole generation. There's just this incredible dignity. And in my father's case, you know, this story, you know, I hope that people get it. First of all, for, for Father's Day, it is the perfect gift. And the information's on quiethero.org quiethero.org. It's called Quiet Hero Secrets from My Father's Past, because part of the proceeds, by the way, go to wounded troops and their families. So it goes to a great cause. But my father, you know, this is very much a bit of a love story, too, because my dad and I really did not know each other until a few years ago. And um, when I grew up, I knew my father went through war. I did not know what he went through. I remember seeing scars all over his body, Craig, when he was, you know, when he came back from a run. And I was eight years old, and I remember this moment vividly. We were camping. He came back jogging, took his shirt off. He was drenched in sweat. And I remember all of a sudden he took his shirt off, and I saw these scars all over his arms and a hole in one of his arms. And I remember thinking, that doesn't look normal. And asking my mother, what happened to Dad? Did he get in a fight or something, you know, like a a curious child? And my mother said to me, I'll never forget this, she said, Rita, your father went through tough times growing up. We don't talk about it. Mm. And the door was closed. And then my father left the family one Christmas very abruptly. You know, I heard my parents arguing in the other room, and my dad said, I'm leaving. And I thought he was leaving work, and it turned out he was leaving us. And so I really did not have a father present in my life for decades. And I, you know, grew, you know, grew up on television, you know, with, and my mother was really my mother and my father. And here I was, you know, at the pinnacle of my career, you know, doing all this great stuff on television and yet, you know, did not have a father present in my life and always wondered what happened to my dad and why he was so detached. And then suddenly my mother passed away. And in my mother's belongings, my brother and I found this old suitcase and inside was essentially my father's life. It was a rusty POW tag, and then I emblazoned with the word Stalag 4B on it and a prisoner number, and then I found a red and white fighting Polish armband with blood and dirt all over it, and then I found a card that had code names. This person had this sort of secret life, and then I found a card of an ex-POW named Richard Kosobutsky, and when I saw this, Craig, I just wept, I, and it was this moment in my life And it wasn't that long ago. This was, you know, just about two years ago. And I sat there in the storage locker, and I said to myself, you know what, I have not had a father present. My father certainly made a lot of mistakes. You know, he left us, you know, high and dry. And my mother was devastated. We were devastated. And never understood what happened to my father emotionally, too. Or I could forgive this man, because clearly whatever pain I went through could not compare 
to what he went through as a prisoner of war. You know, and that's the amazing part of this story, because for many that are familiar around the periphery of the history of World War II, and sadly even those numbers are, are, are dwindling, um, you know, we, we think of some of the early events that took place in Europe, the Anschluss, the annexation of, of uh, Austria, literally swallowing up with Czechoslovakia. But the linchpin, the implosion point, was, in fact, German invasion of Poland in September of 39. And, and, and you what know, it's the... interesting, Greg. My father was outside, saw the invasion, literally saw the invasion at the beginning of World War II. And, and, and it's interesting because... We, we look at the fall of Poland that took place so rapidly, and of course, you know, we, we won't spend time tonight um, in our brief moments together, Rita, pointing fingers at how the, the French made promises that they did not keep, the British made promises that they the did Russians not keep, totally the Rus- the Poland, and the Russians yeah. ended up becoming complicit with the Germans and swallowing up Poland. But the battle particularly for Poland and for Warsaw, and this, you know, we, we're left with the impression that the country surrendered inside of a week, but that really isn't true, particularly for that battle that took place in Warsaw. And your dad at the time, I understand, from your book, Rita, Quiet Hero, was a teenage resistance fighter there in Warsaw. Oh, and right in the throes of it. And, and you obviously have a great sense of history, Craig. You know, and I, it's amazing when you hear these stories. And as you pointed out early on, this is a story that is rarely told. So often we hear about the American GIs and all of their incredible heroics, you know, which deserve to be told. And this is a story, a very unusual story, even for folks who know World War II quite well, you rarely hear such a deeply personal story of being in the inside of the Polish resistance. And in my father's case, he was 13 when World War he saw the planes hovering above, and his father thought it was an air show. And my dad said, no, I don't think that's an air show. And the next thing they know, the, plane, the bombs are dropping. And my father, at a very young age, decided to become a resistance fighter and became a very, apparently, you know, apparently a, a quite courageous one from the records and from other comrades who did survive. And my father was in some of the most brutal fights. I mean, you can imagine. And the stories of the resistance are incredible, of incredible heroics, and I think just utter patriotism. And, and, and it's so inspiring to know that, you know, here my dad, you know, here he is a teenager, and they had Molotov cocktails and sticks. At one point in their unit of 150 men, they had two guns. And yet they are charging the most vicious war machine in the world. And my father was fighting the Nazis for five and a half years. Think about it. Five and a half years with Molotov cocktails and sticks, basically. He was fighting 100 yards from his house. And I think that's why they were such ferocious fighters and such incredible fighters. With anything they had, they were going to fight because they were fighting for survival of their country, survival of their family. And then ultimately my father was captured. He was taken to a POW camp and didn't know if he was going to live another day and luckily escaped. And, you know, my favorite part of my dad's story, Craig, and I think this is this is – a great reminder of who we are as Americans, because my father counts his blessings every day that he lives in the greatest country in the world. He escaped at 90 pounds and six feet tall. Can you imagine? And he's one of the more healthy guys. And he's in the woods. He's with fellow comrades who escaped with him. And there he is in the woods, and he looks up, and he sees a plane. And they think, okay, it's a German plane, and they die for the ditches. And then the plane comes by again, and they think, you know, they're in Germany. They're in the you know, middle of Nazi-controlled Germany. It's wartime. You know, they, you, you're, it's crazy in the camp. It's dangerous as heck in the camp. But you can imagine how scary it is outside of the camp, too. You know, I mean, what do you do? You're in Nazi-controlled territory. And suddenly they look up, 
and something was thrown out of the plane, and they just assumed it was a grenade, and they died for the ditches. And then they look up, and they see a star, and they realize that it's an American plane. And what was dropped out was a chocolate bar with a note wrapped around it, tied with a red ribbon. And the note said, Welcome. It's safe to walk now during daytime. There are no troops between you and our American lines. Mm. You have 15 miles to walk, and you're free. Let's pause at that point. We'll pick up the story around the corner. If you've just tuned in, our conversation tonight, saying this phrase for the first time on radio, New York Times best-selling author, Rita Cosby, a look at Quiet Hero. More information, by the way, on the book, and you can order it, too, online at quiethero.org. We'll come back to more of Rita's story and the story of her father as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When I entered, men crowded around, tried to lift me to their shoulders. They were too weak. Many of them could not get out of bed. As I walked down to the end of the barracks, there was applause from the men too weak to get out of bed. It sounded like the hand clapping of babies. As we walked out into the courtyard, a man fell dead. Two others, they must have been over 60, were crawling towards the latrine. I saw it, but will not describe it. Welcome back to the program. There, Edward R. Morrow from CBS describing his experience with the first American soldiers to walk into the German concentration camp at Buchenwald as it was liberated from the hands of the Nazis at the close of World War II. Welcome back to the program. With me tonight, New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby, the book Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. Let me pause for a moment at this point. Rita, because I have to wonder, you know, we, we think about this generation that, that said so little of their escapades, of the horror that they saw and experienced during World War II, unlike subsequent generations. Back at the time, we referred to it as shell-shocked for those that generally kind of seem to be uh, um, emotionally a bit uh, challenged by all of these experiences. Today, I suppose, uh, better educated, we might refer to it as post-traumatic stress disorder. I would suspect from the moment you opened up that tattered, worn leather suitcase and, and real, realized the significance of the items that you were looking at, it, it must have answered a lot of questions for you about your dad and, and the challenges that took place in your family. Oh, it, it absolutely did, Craig. And, and when, I, when I saw this, I knew I had to call my dad. I knew I had to forgive him. And despite, you know, years of anger and confusion, too, you know, much of it was, how could this man walk out and not be emotional, and as you talked about, being very emotionally void, and so it answered so many questions, and I reached out to my dad, I was, I was glad he was alive, I was glad he was ready to share his story, and he said, you know, I, I wasn't ready years ago, I have not talked about this in 65 years, he didn't even tell my mother. And so he said, you know, I think I'm ready to share the story if we can honor the troops who saved me and my comrades who didn't make it back. And I also feel you're an adult now, Rita. You know, I, it was too painful to share as a child, you know, to let you know then. And I think I'm ready. And that's why I tell everybody, too, I hope that this book inspires other people, too, because the most wonderful emails I have gotten, Craig, and, I ha and my website is quiethero.org quiethero.org, and I'd love to hear everybody's story, because when I read them, and I read them, I, I am so personally moved. My father literally, you know, uh, went through 
en- enormous hurdles, and me and my father went through enormous hurdles together. And I feel like if we can reconcile, almost anybody can, because it, it almost seemed insurmountable. And I've gotten so many beautiful emails from people who have written me and said, you know, I didn't, I wasn't talking to my dad for 20 or 30 years, and I wrote him a, uh, you know, I wrote him in the book, please, dad, let's talk, and sent him a copy of your book. And now we're meeting for lunch tomorrow. Wow! And I've got, and you know that that's the, that is you know the Lord working. That is, you know that is that is a higher power by far. And I am so blessed that this book has been able to be a bridge builder for so many people, maybe even who haven't even encountered someone with war. The other thing that comes to mind is you, you talk about the title of this book. We think hero, uh, a word that we easily banty about these days to which we don't assign an awful lot of, of significance, and yet other words, too, that come to mind that, that unfold on inside the pages of your book, Quiet Hero, as, as your dad recounts the stories and talks about those that were responsible in, in rescuing him as he made his way, you know, escaped essentially there from, um, uh, from that Stalag. Um, words like valor and honor and sacrifice, words that I, I think to certain degrees, Rita, have largely disappeared from the American lexicon, words that most people today just going about day-to-day life and business really don't understand or think about or under, understand or, or perhaps comprehend the significance of in relationship to what men like your dad went through, not just in, in Europe and in dealing with the, the torture and horrors of Nazism, but then those from other countries like Australia and England and Canada and the United States that went to places like Europe to help liberate those people from the clutches of Nazism. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and when you talk about, you use the word valor, I think of one line that my father said, and, and I think it just epitomizes the integrity of, of not just my father, but, but the men who served with him, and by the way, there were women also fighting in the resistance too, which is which is interesting. It was one of the first times in history that women played a huge role in military operations because everybody was needed. You know, men, women, everybody was fighting for. They were all fighting for their country. But he, my dad told me this great line, and this is at the age of 15. Think about you know, it's amazing to think at the age of 15 now you see kids playing Nintendo or skateboarding, Craig, or doing whatever they're doing at 15. And my dad, at the age of 15 could have been snuck out of the country. His mother said, I might be able to buy you out through the black market. I might be able to find a way to get you to, you know, Switzerland, a neutral country. And my father, who was in the resistance at this time, said to my mother, no, I am staying and fighting for my country. And he gave this great line. He said, I would rather die with friends than live with strangers. Mm. I am staying and fighting for my country. And you think about, you know, saying that at the age of 15, knowing that most likely you were going to die for your country because the odds were certainly against you. In my father's unit, 80% of the men did not survive. Wow. So you think about he knew he was going into a bloodbath. Well, and certainly, I mean, having having lived through initially the, the, the bombing of Poland, of Warsaw, uh, by the time the, John, the Germans were done with their job there, um, 85% of all the buildings in that city were completely destroyed. Oh, and, and if you look at the pictures from that, in fact, this is interesting. Where my father was fighting was in the old town part of Warsaw, and that's where some of the most ferocious and, and I guess, you know, uh, determined resistance fighters were. Now, would that, Rita, technically been considered uh, near or at or in even the, uh, the so-called ghetto? Um, it was right near the ghetto, okay. literally right next to the ghetto. And in fact, my father was just about a hundred yards or so from the ghetto wall, his home. 
I mean, that's how close it was. It was literally in that area, exactly. It was literally in that area. So that's where they were rounding up all the Jews. And by the way, my father was so supportive of those in, inside the ghetto. My father believed it didn't matter if you were Jewish or not Jewish. If you were a good person, my father wanted to help you and was willing to help those inside, even at the, you know, the price of his own life, if that's what it meant. Well, and it sounds like he, he got a lot of that, obviously, from his parents, your grandparents, whom I understand you have never met, but uh, weren't they engaged in doing some stuff, even kind of discreetly in the black market that, were, that was being used to assist people in the resistance? Yes, they were actually helping, and they were giving food. They were doing tons of things to help those. And also my father's mother was a really incredible woman. And I think you, you talk about sort of where you learn your morals from. Hitler did not want anyone to practice religion, especially if you were inside or outside the ghetto. And if you were, they, they treated those outside of the ghetto horribly as well. Obviously, those inside the ghetto were just, you know, decimated. And it's, and I think it's unconscionable what happened. It's incredible and just horrific. And my father outside, they were also brutalized. And if my father, had, at the age of 13, started writing anti, anti-Nazi symbols on the ghetto wall, <laughs> can you imagine this? And even though you think about it, it's kind of child's play, that was a death sentence in Poland. It didn't matter how old you were. If the Nazis had caught anybody writing anti-Nazi propaganda on the ghetto walls of all places, you, they, you were going to be killed. And they would go and like clean it off, and then my father would go back two days later and write another, you know, Hitler is a blank or a swastika hanging like, from a gallows, and it was a complete insult, and he should just infuriate them. And my, and my father's mother, at a, even in the height of it all, where she was not supposed to pray or practice religion, she still had a hidden altar in the basement of her apartment. And they had five bombed-out apartments that kept moving, but in each apartment she kept a hidden altar, and everywhere went down and prayed for my father's safety, prayed for the country's safety, prayed for those in the ghetto. And that was the kind of environment that my father grew up in. And I, and I do, I think it transcended into who he was as a fighter. There's another side of the story that I want to come to when we come back after a brief time out, Rita. Um, that's an amazing one. And that is that after all of these years, 60-something years, your dad being able to travel back and you were there with him. I want to have you share what that phenomenal experience was like. And if you've tuned in a bit late tonight, we are visiting in this segment of the program with best-selling time, New York Times best-selling author, I should say, Rita Cosby. The book is called Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. This is a great gift-giving idea, whether you know of someone of that generation uh, that can be honored through the stories in a book like this. Um, a great Father's Day gift. As Rita mentioned, this is being used as a wonderful means of tearing down years of silence and, and, and non-communication between families, um, younger kids that never understood why dad always seemed to be kind of detached in a way or, or, or cold emotionally. This book can not only be an eye-opener but a relationship restorer, even as this experience has been for Rita and for her father. The book again, Quiet Hero, available on the web at quiethero.org. That's quiethero.org. We'll come back to more of our conversation. New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to the program and uh, joining us uh, for an extended segment here. Uh, Rita Cosby has been gracious enough to remain with us. She, of course, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. Uh, the book, by the way, available through her website at quiethero.org. That's quiethero.org. You know, there are so many amazing aspects to this story from the discovery of eventually what became opening of the truth of what your dad experienced um, during World War II um, as not only a prisoner of war but as a resistance fighter. Um, But then, of course, that leading the gateway to really the restoration of your relationship with him after many, many years. You had the opportunity at one point, Rita, to go back, uh, to take your father back to Poland. What was that like? Oh, it it was incredible. And you know what, what, what caused it was I gave him back these items that we found in this old tan tattered suitcase that we talked about earlier that my mother had left behind and it turned out it was again his rusty POW tag and his fighting armband the red and white fighting armband that was dirty and still had blood on it so clearly had been worn and I gave him back the suitcase and I surprised him and I said I have something for you and when I gave him back the suitcase my dad just held on to these items especially that red and white armband and as it turns out when he was fighting the Nazis he was wearing all the, you know, they didn't have, this wasn't an organized army. This was the resistance. This was a bunch of ragtag citizen soldiers, teenagers. And literally, they would have to kill a Nazi to wear some clothes. And they wore, you know, they had, you know, rattered, you know, tattered clothes before that, would grab a Nazi uniform. And the only thing that would separate them from the Nazis was this armband. And it actually gave the resistance an, a leg up because they could get very close sometimes to the Nazis. And then they would turn and point to, hey, I'm a resistance fighter. I'm not one of you. And then they were able to approach him and kill him. And you think about that, that's how close they would often have to get. So you think about how scary that must have been. This was not, you know, long-term fighting with rifles and, and tanks. My, they didn't have it, you know. So they had to go up close, and that was their advantage. And when my father saw that red and white fighting armband, Craig, he just cried, and he was holding on to it. And then he looked up, and he said, you know, I wonder who survived. I wonder who made it. And I said, you know what, Dad, the president of Poland, I, just, I had just met him literally a few weeks before, invited us back. And my father said, all right, let's go back together. And the whole, my whole life growing up, Craig, my father you know, talked about Poland as being held, that there were terrible things that happened there, and I never knew what. And I never knew what role he played or what, or what happened. But I, I never thought he would ever in, in my lifetime ever go back to Poland or his lifetime. And when he said that, I said, let's do it. And literally a few days later, I think it was, we were on a plane to Poland. And my father held my hand when we took off, you know, and and when we landed. And it was like a child. He was so nervous. And it was, you know, there was so, it was, you know, 65 years of emotions. And he came back and got a hero's welcome from the president of Poland because he was in that diehard fighting place. The guys, my father escaped through the sewers at one point from the Nazis. Can you imagine? There was no place above ground. And those fighters who escaped through the sewers, my dad was one of the last men out. They are really considered some of the real heroes in Poland. Here's a guy that that spent an entire lifetime, Rita, um, controlling his emotions, denying it, stuffing them down. Uh, suddenly now he finds himself 60-plus years later back to his home country of Poland. Um, I would suspect that that Stalag 4B 
probably doesn't exist anymore, but there are prison camps that have, that have been kept open for tourists to come and see and for people to, to basically experience that we should never forget. You had an opportunity to tour one of those camps, Auschwitz, yes, in Poland with your father. What was that like for him? Uh, you know, as a journalist, you must have been watching very intently your father's reactions to the experience of going back in and and the memories that must have just been flooding so much emotion to the surface for him. Oh, so many emotions. And and in fact, Stalag 4B, some of it is still there, and some of the record books are there. Really? And we found record books of my father there and also another camp that he was at. So we actually sent crews over to Germany where that camp was. And uh, in in Poland, where Auschwitz is, my father actually had relatives who were taken to Auschwitz. Because early on, most people don't realize Auschwitz originally was for resistance fighters. And so my father knew a number of people who were taken to this horrible place called Auschwitz, you know, in the early days, and they didn't know really what was going on. You know, they didn't see the people or they came back vegetables and would never speak again. And so when my father went there, uh, we were speechless. And my father, the minute he walked into some of the barracks that are still standing there, and it is such a somber feeling to go to Auschwitz because it's huge. And the fact that it's still there and still huge and that that's not all of it, it's overwhelming to the emotions. They're just so angry about man's inhumanity to man and, and what happened. And my father, we walked through a barrack, and he said, this is exactly like the bed I was in, because the, the Germans had everything was very uniform, and what they used in one camp was very similar to what they used in other camps like my dad's, and it brought back all these emotions. And th- the other thing my dad also did was we went to a place in Warsaw where my father said he lost all emotion. And my father, in the middle of the fighting, and remember, they barely had any guns. They had two guns in their unit. One of them was my dad's, and he barely had any bullets in it. Everything was scarce. And my father had gotten wind through some other guys that there was a tank that was seized by the resistance, a German tank, which is a a huge coup. Remember, they're outgunned, they're outmanned, and suddenly they get a German tank. And my father's girlfriend was going to run all over the tank and, you know, parade on the tank along with a lot of his comrades. And my father said, oh, there's something kind of fishy. This is a little too good to be true. And he gave his girlfriend his Luger and said, just take this, this is his gun. Just take this, just in case. And he walked away. He was heading back in another direction, went a few blocks, and suddenly the ground shook and the tank exploded. Mm. Booby-trapped. It was booby-trapped. And everybody on the, on the tank was killed. 500 people were killed. It was taken to a busy town square. 800 were injured. There's now a huge marker there in Poland symbolizing what happened. And my father ran back looking for a piece of his friends. And my father said, this is in the middle of fighting still. And he ran back and he said when he went there, there was no trace of anything. Of course, nothing of his friends, nothing of his girlfriend, nothing of his Luger. Everything was evaporated. And he was just walking there in rivers of blood. And my father said at that moment, he said he had to compartmentalize He had to be able to keep fighting because he wanted to keep fighting for those who had just perished, for his country. And he said, I had to block it out. And when we went back to the scene together, my father just broke down in tears, Craig. It was so emotional for me. And he looked up at me and said, I'm so sorry. He said, I did the best I could as a father. I tried, but after this moment, I had no emotion in life. Nothing fazed me. And losing a family, you know, decades later... I couldn't be affected because I lost hundreds of friends in an instant. 
and you know, and of course I said, I, I forgive you, Dad. And then that was a very dramatic moment for me and a very powerful moment. And, and after that moment, I have broken through with my dad. My dad is truly a different man today than he was, you know, years ago. Indeed so, and that, that takes us back full circle to that observation by you know, fellow um, television journalist uh, Tom Brokaw. This indeed was uh, our greatest generation. Rita, thanks so much for the book and the time and the insights. And um, for your dad, uh, when you talk to him next, uh, again, thanks to him. Uh, he may not regard himself as a hero, but he's a, the, a hero in the eyes of many of us. Thank you so much. And, and I hope everybody gets the book. It's quiethero.org, quiethero.org, and it's Quiet Hero Secrets from My Father's Past. And, and I hope it, uh, the journey inspires everyone as much as it's inspired my dad. Undoubtedly so. Again, New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby, the book Quiet Hero. More information on the web at quiethero.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How many believers today, maybe maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself, you can tell people what you believe, you just can't tell them why. We're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest, certainly a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. here on KFAX, senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland and Alistair. Great to have you on the program. Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's it's a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, the <laughs> Lord has done some amazing things over the course of the last three decades. Could, could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your, your wife and young family all that time ago that, that the Lord would have taken you in this direction? No, I, I honestly couldn't. And uh, it seems in some ways as though it was only yesterday. Time has gone by so quickly, as you say. And yet uh, these have been great and privileged years. And I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all. It's been a peculiar joy to, uh, first of all, serve this congregation and have them be so long-suffering as to put up with me for three decades. And uh, <laughs> and then the radio program on top of that is a, is a, is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are uh, humbled by and don't take for granted. Well, and we don't take it for granted either, Alistair, because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so, more and deeper into the arena of a, a Christian apologetics, of which, my goodness, if there was ever a day and time when we needed Christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within, this is it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I was listening to your introductory comments, and uh, I, I agree with you entirely. And uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault, if there if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, uh, Christian people, uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors, because our role is to prepare God's people for works of ministry, and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation and. Uh, so uh, we don't want to chide ourselves too much, but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented uh, in uh, the culture here in America, particularly in, and expressly so just in the last few days. Well, and certainly, you know, I think all of us perhaps begrudgingly can agree that there have been um, areas lacking 
in the modern-day American pulpit. But that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this, too. And I think about uh, a wonderful focus that you bring. I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson, Name Above All Names. And I just, for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Uh, Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon him, and to meditate on how great he is. Then Alistair continues, Being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action, rather than meditation, is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in, in the church in specific and in our society at large, that, that certainly summarizes it. Well, yeah, I think it's a, <laughs> I think it sounds so good. I'm pretty sure that must be Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> but it's right on the mark because we we don't ponder the word the way we used to. No. And to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of God's grace that, that God would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so, and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf. Such a greater love mankind has never known. And and I think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we've, it, we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that. And I imagine if we would recapture that ability, how the church could turn the world upside down. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, if you take the average person coming to church, they're, they're not asking the question, where is Jesus? They're asking, where am I? Mm. And uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of Scripture and even the way in which uh, the Bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are you know, sort of immediately appealing, but they don't have any long-lasting value. They're not going to stand uh, in the in the challenges of, of uh, time when a culture as, as ours turns increasingly secular and uh, the Christian church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in, in the culture, which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche, at, at least until this point in time. How much of this really pivots on the church, its strength, its understanding of God's Word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of of culture and society at large? Well, you know, church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that uh, that the collapse of the church has always been internal. You know, it it has always been able to handle the, the challenges of persecution, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've they've rallied to the challenge. Um, but but the real danger is the the danger of a sort of internal uh, erosion and a, a collapse in confidence, a loss of confidence 
in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself. And again, many many people who pay lip service to to Jesus uh, will be uh, really uh, struggling to to stand up to the. The, the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus, that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus, that there is only one name by which men and women may be saved, and that is in the name of Jesus. And the, the, the drift in culture in, in our um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history is so dominant that uh, it, it's absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ uh, really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man or a a woman in Christ really is. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Pastor Alistair Begg with us on the program. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ as our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Begg on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org, the broadcast weekday mornings at 7.30 right here on KFAX. You know, we hear these days, Alistair, uh, churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms, uh, on the pulpit rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis, preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about the need to count the cost of what it truly needs to, means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something that is that seems to be glaringly absent. Well, yes. I, you know, I think... Um it's always dangerous to generalize, and I know you understand that too. Um, yeah, I think we've gone through a real, a, a real period of time in which, you know, that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness. And, um, you know, when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale Divinity students, uh, James Stewart, in, in 1952, uh, he warned them, 52, which is 61 years ago, about what he referred to as a, a, a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity, which he said was absolutely useless. Mm. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of the one of the encouraging things for me as somebody who's now moved into, you know, um, my 60s is to see how many young men, though, are coming through in uh, various places in the country, and who have really fastened on to the idea that uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus, but we must just state them as they are. And of course, to fail to do so really uh, sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the me- I mean, in, in first century Corinth, Paul knew that, uh, you know, if he gave the people what they wanted to to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. Uh, But the one thing that uh, that they were unprepared for 
is, um, you know, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as we look at society today, uh, Western culture, there still seems to be a desire and interest in spiritual things. I, I think that sense of, of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it, and we head out to many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and and yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a strong spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and, and present a gospel that people can look at and say, wow, there's real power behind this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. I, you know, we have an Australian friend who visits here, you know, every few years. And I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning you know, sort of American Christianity. And of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen. But uh, <laughs> he... He, you know, he said that he, he he sensed a tone in American Christianity which was, which was a tone of admonition, rather than a tone of mission, so mm. that we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong, uh, you know, in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings, and I think it is an important thing to realize that uh, Jesus never ever. Um, and he never deviated from the clarity of his message. And yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which uh, we ought to be prepared to, to speak to people on the on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to a great degree in the sense, Alistair, that I think of the, the wave of evangelicalism uh, getting involved in the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that, that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do. And yet, oftentimes, it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly the evidence of the um, uh, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days proves that. Yet at the end of the day, the real power is the, is the changed heart. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we do want to make sure that, that each of us are seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for uh, you know, moral rectitude and for, for biblical values and so on. But um, you know, I, I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to... Well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time I think that the moral majority and uh, and that whole movement is you know is is coming to the fore and doing what it's done and you know it's gone all the way around. But you know, I think we have to say that it actually it really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now. Uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than 
um, uh, a testimony to to immorality and to the the the, um, the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and labored for. And I actually am quite excited about it, though, Craig. I I'm not uh, despondent. I'm not wringing my hands. I I think that there are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church. Mm. If we if we recognize that, uh, as we must, that God is sovereign over these things, that he is the one who sets people up and he is the one who brings them down. Um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum, and therefore our voice must be heard. But we have to recognize, too, that you know our view of the world is is a much larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, Savior, but he is an ascended king, that he rules over the cosmos, and that the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which, of course, challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic, uh, which, of course, is, you know, uh, both both perspectives are prevalent in in our contemporary society. So that really takes us back then to the centrality of his lordship, and maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church. As much as it's easy to become dismayed by these events, morally, politically, even economically, that's been occurring in our country and in, in sort of the the micro and globally in the macro, to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and, and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things, then I think God can indeed have us in the position where he can better use us to influence culture and society around us. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like, uh, you know, the 18th century awakening with Whitfield, yes. you've, you, all, you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke. And he combined, as did Spurgeon in Victorian England, um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds, so that both of them were engaged in in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages. And yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the, the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living that, that uh, cares for, the, for those who are least and last and left out. If there could be one singular message that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across— to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior, what would that be? Wow. Oh, well, I think if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I think to fully understand that, you know, when Paul says, one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that, that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion. He's talking about being an expression of his identity, that what he's saying there is that this that this Jesus, as the apostles did post-Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and King. And therefore, I have no freedom to believe anything other than what he teaches me, and what he teaches me is left for me in the Scriptures. And I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that 
for which uh, to which I'm called. And that then, you know, impacts every area of our lives, uh, our vocation, uh, our sexuality, uh, our marriages, uh, our singleness, whatever it might be. And, you know, then then we have an opportunity to uh, to speak to people. And, and often, uh, you know, the, the attractiveness of it uh, ought to be found in the loveliness of Christ, mm. the compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ. And I think so often... If you, if you take, for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way and a few crazy people have, have led to it, but, but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people, uh, as opposed to uh, a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians. Uh, they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for, there's silence. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, 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 you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a, what a conversation starts. May I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't, he, he eventually gets to the point, you know, when he asks her to call her husband and, and she admits that, you know, she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover. But that's not, what, that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning, you know, her, uh, her multiple relationships. He, he starts by uh, simply engaging her in conversation. Maybe we as the church can learn a lot from that example, that we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation and, of course, ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple, to count the cost. We sure appreciate your time, your faithfulness to the Lord, and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry. Thanks so much again for the time. There's Pastor Alistair Begg. Again, uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 7.30 here on KFAX. And uh, wow, 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in uh, Cleveland. And what a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this. If Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note? not about puffing people up, but you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference, that what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for His Word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org, truthforlife.org. And our thanks again to Alistair Begg for being with us. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.